Hello and welcome to this Food and Drink Federation Passionate About Food and Drink podcast. My name is Tim Rycroft. I'm Chief Operating Officer at FDF and I'm joined today by my boss and old friend Ian Wright, our Chief Executive. So Ian, uh, I suspect you're probably quite bored of people asking you whether or not there'll be a Brexit deal and as we sit here on the 3rd of December, uh, I don't think we're really any closer to knowing the answer to that question. So I thought I might uh, try and put it a little differently to see if we can shed some more light on this. What do you think are the factors that are driving both sides of the negotiation as they consider whether or not to conclude a deal? Well, Tim, I'm bound to be right sometime when I say there is going to be a deal or there isn't going to be a deal. So at least once in the cycle of this question being asked, I'm almost certain to be right. Um, but I've been wrong every other time, which is really rather perturbing. Um, and I think the, the reason that it's so difficult to call is because, as you say, there are a number of factors which, which are at the heart of the decision on this. And it is essentially a political decision. Uh, I think most neutral observers would expect it to be a kind of economic calculation about whether Britain's better off under or the United Kingdom is better off uh, with a deal or without a deal. Or perhaps put another way whether the pain of a no-deal outcome is so great that it would materially affect the political fortunes of uh, the government and uh, would be very detrimental to uh, the people and business the community of the people and businesses of the United Kingdom. Um, and I think uh, the answer for most people would be that a no-deal outcome would be so materially worse than uh, having a deal that no rational person would conclude that it was the right thing to do. Uh, however, I think there are there is an alternative analysis of that, and I think that's one that that you particularly feel is a a real concern, isn't it? Well, it's certainly true that whenever uh, whenever one's struggling to understand why politicians act in the way they do, I, I always think it's it's worth defaulting to the view of um, they're doing whatever they think will lead them being re-elected. That's a, an incredibly powerful motivating factor for politicians right across the world of all colours. And uh, it seems to me that as we approach the anniversary of Boris Johnson's extraordinary general election victory, uh, it's worth reflecting that it was uh, um, it was astonishing not only for the scale of the majority, 80 seats, but where that majority came from. It was a significant shift in voting behaviour in the UK in which uh, a swathe of seats, the Northern Midlands, that previously had shown little propensity to vote Conservative, chose to do so. And it's certainly the government's analysis that that was motivated by this uh, thought that is summed up by get Brexit done and that it was the the motivation of freeing the UK from the EU of re-establishing sovereignty and borders and uh, financial sovereignty and all those things that we've heard about that that caused that change to happen and clearly the government it, it's massively in the government's interest that that group of voters who changed their behaviours last year should be persuaded to do the same thing or to stick with those behaviours when the next election comes around. And I'm sure that in Downing Street, they will be studying very carefully all the polling, uh, qualitative and quantitative polling data that they will get daily on how those voters are viewing Brexit 
And it is clear that, uh, and you kind of alluded to this, that, that for some people who've been passionately attached to the cause of Brexit for many years, um, the, the question of what is a price worth paying for re-establishing UK sovereignty and independence, um, their view is that that price could be quite high. They would be prepared to pay quite a high economic and uh, uh, price for re-establishing sovereignty. And if it is the case that those voters uh, would see the disruption that will come from no deal as a price worth paying, as the Prime Minister vindicating their support for him as someone who wasn't prepared to do a deal which would in any way keep us tied to the EU, and clearly some of the things that are in dispute at the moment around governance, uh, around level playing fields, state subsidies and the rules around that are things which potentially would see us agreeing some kind of um, EU involvement in those issues. So that is, I guess, what worries me as we as we continue to, to get closer to the, the wire, even if the wire disappears every day a bit further down the road. Uh, that is what worries me about the calculations being made about no deal, that um, they're not simply looking objectively at economic consequences and the, the balance of those, but that the political imperatives are very much greater. So uh, I, my head very much tells me that there will be a deal. Um, uh, my, my heart and my cynical old political instincts um, perhaps tell me that the, there's still an alternative outcome. Um, and we will see, as we keep saying, and as you say, eventually perhaps we will be proven right in our predictions. There is, of course, a difference uh, we'll expect between the announcement of a deal and the substance of a deal. Can you say a little bit about that? Yes, I think we're, um, I think we, we're going to have to wade through uh, the kind of cheering crowds uh, which may attend the announcement of a deal um, and look at the text. Now, that's going to be a quite a slow and laborious process because I believe it's around a thousand pages of text. And as famously, it hasn't yet been translated into French. So uh, there will be a delay before uh, anybody can really understand or grip what the implications of the small print might be. Uh, I think we know sort of the shape of the deal. I, I had thought, certainly in October and actually early November, that the deal might be a bit better than everybody was expecting. I know that the, the expectations have been uh, laid so subterraneanly low now that, that almost any signature on a piece of paper would be uh, better than expected. And uh, I, think, I think what we have to do is look at the way in which the deal is laid out. The other thing I think we're going to have to look at, which isn't part of the deal but is its direct consequence, is what happens in the negotiation uh, in the Joint Committee on the Northern Ireland Protocol. Because the, the area that we think, or certainly I think, is most at risk, deal or no deal, is the way in which trade with Northern Ireland is impacted. And I simply don't think that the preparations that have been put in place, uh, either the physical preparations at, at Cairn Ryan, uh, in Scotland, or actually the overall preparations for the regulations that will apply in Northern Ireland, are remotely appropriate and are remotely at the standard and uh, extent that's needed. So I think I do think the Northern Ireland Protocol is currently a shambles, 
And I think there's a pretty high chance that it will be a shambles on January the 1st. Do you think that uh, the situation about trade, GB, Northern Ireland, will be more acute then than some of the expectations about disruption at the, the border of the short straits of the Channel? Yes, I do. I think Northern Ireland will be significantly worse than uh, Dover-Calais. Um, and I think that Dover-Calais may, at least initially, be OK. Um, I think the UK government's preparations, Operation Brock, the, 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 the way in which Kent has been turned into an armed military camp for all practical purposes, uh, has, uh, has probably licked it into shape. And I do think that UK-EU will probably be OK. Um, I'm not so sure about EU-UK. Uh, we don't really know what the level of readiness of uh, traders on the other side of the channel is. Um, and despite actually pretty significant efforts by the uh, government to find out, they haven't been able to do so to their complete satisfaction. I think the Secretary of State, George Eustace, is probably right when he asserts that that the 70% the, the of people who do most of the trade are as ready as they can be and will have the right things in place. Uh, there will be a problem, I think, with hauliers because uh, a lot of European hauliers will be reluctant to come to the UK because they won't be sure that they can get uh, a load to bring back. And the backload is the key to the profitability of their operation. So I think there'll be a smaller pool of people prepared to come and that may cause some difficulty. But I think the fact that the UK government will be in effect for the first six months be waving everybody through with very, very minimal checks uh, at uh, this side of the border will be okay. Um, I wouldn't underestimate the damage to the overall mix that will be done by the continuing difficulties at Felixstowe. Uh, that isn't really about fresh food, it's more about ambient food. And Felixstowe and other container ports actually all operating at below capacity is very unhelpful in this particular moment. And those are issues beyond just Brexit, aren't they? Yes, I mean, the, the, the Felixstowe issue is actually, a, 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 at one level, a fascinating problem uh, caused by COVID because essentially, as I understand it, or at least as it's been explained to me, what has happened is that uh, uh, globally, people are buying more things and fewer services and experiences because they can't go out or they don't want to go out. So the buying of more things means that the places that make them open brackets, China, close brackets, uh, are absorbing more of the services needed to take those things to market, that's containers, and therefore that together with the disruption caused by the COVID crisis itself in terms of people being stricken and therefore not being able to provide their, their services on board ship and ships not being able to move because they weren't allowed into ports and so on. Those two facts, an economic consequence and the fact of COVID, have combined to mean that the container, the last, the vast majority of containers are in the wrong place, uh, or at least in the, a place that they're not normally. And the consequence of that is they're on that there are real difficulties for containers coming into UK ports. Those difficulties are compounded by the fact that the NHS, having had not enough PPE, now famously has more PPE than it knows what to do with, literally, and has therefore left forty thousand containers on the dockside at Felixstowe, thereby stopping other containers coming through. So just moving on then to COVID, which uh, while the light at the end of the tunnel gets a little brighter each day, uh, we remain firmly in the tunnel. We know that food and drink manufacturing is going to be 
early in the queue for mass testing. Um, we don't yet know, obviously, about vaccination, but uh, for mass testing, uh, we know that that is uh, an area where food and drink manufacturing has been identified as a to be an early adopter. Is there something you can tell us about how you think that will work and on what timescale? Yes, I'm quite excited by this uh, at two levels. One is um, I think it's a great indication of our importance in the national uh, in national life and in the economy uh, that the government has chosen food manufacturing to be the first manufacturing sector, indeed the first business sector, to roll out mass testing. Of course, it's done mass testing in geographical areas, and it appears that the mass testing program in Liverpool has actually helped bring down the rate, the R rate in that uh, in that region of the UK, and th- therefore Liverpool is in tier two and may even be in tier one uh, when the next uh, move is made on assigning places to tiers. Um, so I'm very I'm very excited that we have, as an industry, managed to get ourselves into the position where we are sufficiently respected and our contribution to the economy is seen as critical. Um, I'm also interested in it as a logistical task, and, and it's, um, again, quite exciting. I, that isn't sort of too trivial a, an emotion to feel, um, that the FDF has been asked to coordinate this. Uh, so basically, we've been asked to uh, initially run some, help run some pilots in different kinds of uh, food manufacturing settings, and we will, of course, be involving our friends from other trade associations to help identify the right places in industries where we aren't particularly well represented. So we will be running, I would think, up to about 10 pilots uh, from the beginning of next week. They won't all start at the beginning of next week, but they will uh, move into action over next week. And um, the intention is to see how that works and then roll out uh, a national uh, volunteer scheme in the sense that obviously only businesses that want to do this will do it. But I can't see myself why any business wouldn't want to do this. Uh, so we will be running, rolling out mass testing across the industry in the first week of January. That's very exciting. And are you looking for companies to come forward and volunteer? Yes. So if anybody's listening to this uh, who w- wants to put their business in the spotlight of doing this and uh, wants to take on uh, either as a pilot or later on once we've ironed, and there will be some difficulties, undoubtedly there'll be some glitches in the way it works, that's the point of a pilot, uh, but we, we, we think we know how to do this. There have been some tests, uh, some testing run uh, in factories already, uh, both in uh, across the food industry. We've had meat factories, canning factories, other factories and other distribution centres have been uh, used to uh, roll out testing and see how it works. So we have some experience of this. But if anybody does want to uh, trial testing, we would be very, very keen to hear from them. Uh, they should just contact me, ian.right at fdf.org.uk, as ever. So earlier this week, we've had two days of the FDF convention. Uh, normally, of course, a, a conference, this time a, a virtual event. And worth saying that if any of you missed the convention, we will be replaying the various sessions next week. And so there'll be an opportunity to catch up, so to speak, uh, with the bits of the convention that you met, you missed. But um, I was very struck by the breadth of subjects that we were able to cover this year. And 
in particular, the importance of sustainability of issues such as a proposed tax on non-recycled plastics, deposit return schemes, and the huge challenges of, of decarbonising heat within food and drink manufacturing. I would say to someone yesterday that uh, in, in more normal times, those are issues that would be right at the top of the agenda for our industry. And of course, they've been somewhat pushed further down by Brexit and COVID. Do you think 2021 will be the year when the sustainability challenges do come much more sharply into focus? Yes, I do. And I think that the I think that that's a very important uh, point. I, I think we've been distracted, actually, from some really crucial issues for the future of our industry for too long. I don't say that we were wrong to be distracted, because to be brutal about it, we, we have to uh, neg- navigate and negotiate the, the COVID crisis. We have to negotiate the EU uh, exit. Uh, we have to resolve the problems of our trade with Northern Ireland. Those are first order urgent. But I think the issues that we debated in the convention are really important and they are urgent as well. I mean, the future of the planet could not be more, there couldn't be anything that's more important to us and our children. Uh, so I think working out how the food industry essays the question of decarbonisation, how it handles plastics uh, going forward are very big and important issues. And I'm really pleased with the quality of the debate that we had at the convention. I'm also pleased that we're beginning to look at some other issues like automation and robotics, uh, because the future of food manufacturing will look quite different. And what COVID has done is to uh, shine a light on some different kinds of business organisation. I mean, we're, we're doing this remotely when we would normally be in in the studio together. We've uh, all been working at home, or many of us have been working at home at least part of the time for nine months. And food manufacturers have been resetting their their factories so they're socially distanced, so people are working in cohorts. Um, There's been a a move to fewer SKUs uh, and a more focused kind of operation. There are logistical changes, which are the consequence of retailers moving increasingly to online and to delivered uh, food, although there are, again, capacity issues there. All these are going to have profound impacts on the way in which food manufacturing works in future, on the financing and on its viability and the way in which we we approach the question of what we should manufacture and how we should convey it to our customers and shoppers. So these are really important issues and they go to the heart of the future of the industry. And I think it's it's right and it's really quite, again, exciting that the FDF is is dealing with those um, as much as it is dealing with Brexit and COVID. It also struck me in watching the convention that we are facing a huge range of challenges across the policy landscape. And one of the things that I think we have found difficult is that uh, we, we the government sees that only from the point of view, whichever issue it is, it's engaging with us on. So uh, Brexit people think that we should respond to the Brexit challenges and the COVID people think we should respond to the COVID challenges and the public health people think we should respond to the obesity challenges. And they all see those challenges as as proportionate, but none of them see across the piece 
uh, the range of regulatory interventions, potential changes to processes and bureaucracy and costs that will come from some of these things. Um, hopefully, of course, the convention is a, is a step in, in helping broaden awareness of that. But is there anything else you think we can do to raise this issue of the, 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 the huge amount of pressure that food and drink manufacturing is under? Yes, I mean, I think we should be very clear that we've built a platform and a, re- a level of recognition for the industry's importance which we can now leverage. Um, so if you leverage platforms, you probably need a better metaphor than that. Um, but uh, we can, I think, take some pride in our contribution to the to the resolution of um, and the fight against COVID. I think we, we've fed the nation pretty well over the last nine months, and we must continue to do that over the coming months. Um, and we've, we've taken a place uh, in the national debate uh, and I think now we need, as the Food and Drink Federation and as the, the, the at least the largest representative of the industry, to try and find ways to use the platform we've created to explain exactly, as you've just said, to the government that these challenges cannot all be met at the same time with the same quality of response uh, because uh, the economic conditions in which we're operating don't allow us the endless resource you'd need to do that. So we're going to have to prioritise. We're going to have to uh, be very focused in actually rather the same way that manufacturers have moved to this much more focused uh, attitude to SKUs over the last nine months. I mean, if you'd said to uh, one of our biggest members uh, that they would move from an excess of 80 SKUs on the 23rd of March very quickly to fewer than a dozen, uh, a week later, and that that wouldn't wouldn't actually end end up in a sort of mass consumer shopper rebellion because they couldn't find the size or style of product that they wanted. I think you'd have got a fairly dusty response in early March, but the fact that we were able to do that and um, and, and that's happened across the industry, there are some consequences, of course. But the fact that that has happened is a is I think a a testament to our ability to prioritise effectively, to bring resource to bear on the most urgent problems. And I guess the, the, the challenge for us as a, as a representative body is to try and help our members and our industry to make those calls about what should be, what, what the order in which we should resolve these issues should be. And then when we talk to government to make it very clear that we cannot do everything at once and retain financial viability. Uh, and we have to be brave about what we say. We don't have to be rude, but we have to be forceful. And we have to be, if necessary, clear with the public that these are the choices we're having to make and that there are um, consequences that could come as a, as a result of that. Thanks very much. Well, we have just a few minutes remaining, and I just wanted to touch on something we haven't really talked about much um, up to now, which is business relations with government. Uh, clearly, the Brexit process... And some of the economic consequences of decisions governments made about COVID restrictions have put massive pressure on relations between business and government. Um, as we look to a, uh, a bright beyond issues of COVID and Brexit, how do you think government should be planning to rebuild its relationship with the key uh, business sectors in this country? Well, I don't know that at the moment the government necessarily realises that that's important, although I think people in government 
realise that's important. And there's no doubt, actually, that um, DEFRA is seen as uh, a bit of a poster child for good relations with the industry that it, or the industries that it manages. Um, and it's obviously it's, it's traditionally been the, the Ministry for Farmers, to be honest. It's not been uh, not been although it's had responsibility for food. Um, it hadn't really seen it as a primary part of its policy objectives until very recently. But I think uh, Secretary of State George Eustace has very much seen the value of his regular, actually during the crisis, daily engagement with uh, all parts of the food and drink supply chain. And he's seen the benefits of that in terms of his ability to intervene early and effectively to resolve problems. And he's a very competent minister um, and a very effective minister in that mode. And I think that's been picked up actually beyond the food and farming industry and beyond DEFRA. So I've heard a number of other industries. I, I participate in a regular weekly call with uh, my colleagues who lead the other major manufacturing industry trade associations and they're pretty envious of our relationship with DEFRA. They don't have the same relationship with uh, the business department and I, I suspect that, that, that there's a bit of a key there that, that the way in which government can actually uh, turbocharge its relationships with business probably involves having a really heavyweight Secretary of State in the business department. If you look back in, in, uh, in the, the last 20 or 30 years in politics, apart from the chancellors of the Exchequer, the really big figures have actually been in that department. Uh, so Peter Mandelson, Michael Heseltine, both really effective ministers. Um, and, and also people who were perhaps less famous, but, uh, uh, but also had you know, a spell there where they could see what they did with the, what they did with the agenda. So Patricia Hewitt and uh, Saj Javid. So I think what, and I'm, I'm disappointed, to be honest, that Alok Sharma, who's a good man and a very uh, thoughtful man, hasn't put his stamp on, on the business department yet. Uh, he may yet do so, but there's a real opportunity to be, um, to be at the head of that department and to be the voice for business and a critical friend for business in government. And I hope that we will see that role played by whoever is Secretary of State for Bayes or whatever it's called. And maybe the Prime Minister's slip yesterday at uh, PMQs may have given the clue to the fact that he's planning to change the department a bit. I think... Uh, I think we will see, we will see, or could see, a really effective uh, platform built there for the, the, the uh, for the role of business in our national life. Uh, I certainly hope so. And with a new chief executive at the CBI who doesn't come with uh, with the baggage of the past, who's who's got a clean slate to work on. I think there is a bit of a chance of, of, a, of a reset. Quick quiz question. Who was the first Secretary of State for Industry, Trade and Regional Development in 1963? Edward Heath. Oh, you're amazing. Yes, for only one year. Yes. I mean, interestingly, uh, the Tory ministers of in the early days of, of the Department of Trade and Industry, uh, they, they tried in 1970 when Mr Heath got back, they tried the experiment of bringing in the, the chief executive of the CBI, John Davis, um, as, uh, as Secretary of State for Trade and Industry. And he was an extremely good industrialist and an utterly hopeless politician. Um, and there's a bit, of a bit of a theme there that business leaders who've gone into politics 
uh, one thinks of Archie Norman, for example, very, very fine business leaders who have rarely been able to survive the, uh, the ups and downs of politics. Um, and the people like you and me, Tim, who have gone from politics into business have perhaps fared a little better because we have the reptilian skills that are necessary for survival in this uh, in the business world. Uh, and on that undoubtedly complimentary note, I think we should wrap up for today. Only a reminder that uh, for the latest news and uh, analysis of, of Brexit developments, please do take part in our Brexit Essentials event, which takes place on Thursday the 10th of December. Ian, thank you for today and we will see you again in two weeks time. Join us for the FDF Awards online February 3rd 2021. Visit our website fdf.org.uk for full details.